character that people don't necessarily get a lot into reading. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. God seems to be angry throughout most of it. Uh, but if we look in the first few books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, yes, even that strange book of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the five books, uh, that we see these messages that are presented to us. We get to know the specific things that God is about. Uh, they're like this. In scriptures, uh, they're very succinct. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. We see this in Exodus. Moses standing at the burning bush. Has the, the people have been in, is, in Egypt for 400 some odd years. And then he says at the bush, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. I want you to go take care of them. That's one of the, that's one of the biggest messages you'll see uh, in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament. The next one is God cares about the human sufferings and the conditions that have caused it. When Cain kills Abel, God says, there's blood crying out to me. I know something happened here. God hears that. He cares about the conditions that are happening. And the third one, God is searching for a community of people to care for the same things that God cares about. At the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 17-ish, they're standing there and God says, you will be my people, you will be my priests, you'll be my representatives, which means that you're going to care for the same things I care for. And when people look at you, they will see what God looks like and what God stands for. You will be my people. God is looking for a people. The fourth thing, God gives people power and blessings so that in return they will use those power and blessings to bring justice for the people who are trapped in the, it, without those power and blessings. So they will stand up and fight for those. These, this is the message that you see in the Old Testament. Now when you get to the prophets, they start talking about how, how the people of Israel have forgotten these messages and they've moved away from their original calling. They have forgotten the law. Instead of being uh, a light to those who are suffering injustice, they are now slaveholders. They are weapons dealers. But this, these four messages, it, these four things is what God is like. This is what God is about. This is the path that would lead to life for anyone who decided to follow it. Now, when we forget this path, when we fail to hear this cry, when we forget to hear about, care about human suffering, when we forget, when we fail to live up to the things that God cares about, when we forget to be the ones to bless others, we miss what God had in mind. We miss the original calling of why we were created. At the height of their power, the Israelites misconstrued their, uh, their, uh, their blessing for favoritism and entitlement. They became indifferent to their priestly calling, and they forgot to bring liberation to others. And there's a word for this when this happens, and it's a word that we need to understand if we're going to continue to understand what is happening in this book of Ezekiel and to continue to understand what is happening in Jonah. The word that, we're going to, that, we wanted, that I want you, us to understand is what happens when you forget those four messages, when you forget your story, when you forget why you are here in the first place. The word for that is exile. Exile is not just about location. Exile is the state of your soul. Exile is when you fail to convert your blessings to bless others. Exile is when you find yourself a stranger uh, to the reasons why you were created in the first place. Exile is when you fail to fulfill the purposes of God. The larger meaning of exile is also when we forget our story. And the story that we're living in is not the story that either God had planned for you or the story that you thought the way your life was going to work out. It's when there's a dissonance between what you wanted 
and what you long to be and what you are now. For instance, you might find yourself in exile when you wanted health. You wanted to do all of these things and now you are in exile because cancer, because other diseases that you have. Sickness can be in exile because what you want and where you are and there's a dissonance between that. Uh, You wanted to be married. Instead, you're single or you're widowed or you're divorced or you're going through a divorce. What you wanted is not what you have. You wanted a meaningful work, a meaningful job. Instead, you're stuck at a very well-paying job, but you absolutely hate it. You wanted to make a difference in the world, but now you're feeling like every single day is like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Have we seen Groundhog Day, or am I on my own there? Okay, fantastic movie. Ned, Ned Ryerson. Okay, there's a sense that there's loss and they're being trapped. This is exile. Exile is when you're trapped in this. It's when, uh, we said it in the very beginning of the series, it's, it's not that you don't have roots, it's just that you're being held up and all of your roots are exposed and the pain of exile is there. There's a dissonance between what you were called to do, you have forgotten your story, and now you're lost. You find yourself in exile. Exile sounds like a place where it, uh, no hope can be found, but in fact, what we find in Scripture is exile is where we find hope. Because in these stories of exile, we're always forced to remember this, that God always hears the cry of his people. No matter where they are, God is present with them. This is why they were so surprised that while being in Babylon, God showed up. God's glory was present in the middle of exile, in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their lost story, in the middle of their dissonance. And so, if exile is forgetting what you were called to do, Ezekiel 18 comes right in the center of the book, and it's more about, Ezekiel 18 reminds us how we can find our way back from exile. It helps us remember, and then it reminds us to stay on the correct path that leads towards the life that we were created for. But today, in order to stay on that path, I want to talk about three R's. Uh, Sesame Street, it's brought to you by the letter R. That's the letter of the day, Elmo. The first one we want to talk about, the first thing that we need to do in order to remember our story, to return from exile, is to embrace a reality. I don't have an outline in the bulletin. It's called being on, in, on vacation, so you're going to have to write it in yourself, okay? Embrace reality. When you're in the midst of exile, it's very easy to develop this victim mentality. It's always somebody else's fault. When everything is going wrong, when you're sick and you don't want to be sick, when you're single and you don't want to be single, when you're jobless and you don't want to be jobless, it's always somebody else's problem. And I fell into this in my story when we had the moment of exile. It was always that person's fault for not hiring. It was always that person's fault for rejecting me when I asked them out on a date. Happened a lot. Uh, It was always this person's fault for their problem. It was never my fault. This is what happens in exile is we, we develop this false reality that there's nothing wrong with us. The problem relies on other people. This is what was happening in Babylon in Ezekiel's day. He says this in Ezekiel 18, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me. 
What do people mean by quoting this proverb in the, about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is a question that God is asking Ezekiel. Uh, the word proverb, we, we trip up and think, oh, he's talking about the lovely book of Proverbs. Maybe he's talking about the Proverbs 31. No, this is a totally different thing. It's a saying that was popular back in the day. It was like a, a chorus that everybody knew. It's like the top song on Billboard. Everybody knows the Jonas Brothers are back and they have a top song and we're all, if you guys aren't Jonas Brothers fans, uh, neither am I. But they, they have this song and everyone's singing the chorus. And so this was a popular chorus back in the day. And it wasn't just popular in Babylon. Jeremiah quotes it in Jeremiah 31. He has the same thing. So people in Jerusalem are saying this. The parents eat sour, sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And people in Ezekiel are saying the same thing. And God's saying, what is with this chorus? What is with this proverb? What do they mean by this? Here's what it meant back in the day. It says, our parents ate sour grapes, yet we are the ones with the toothache. Our parents are the ones who ate all the Halloween candy, but the kids are the ones with the cavity. This is what he, he's, he's, he's a, their, their problem was, they were saying, we didn't do anything wrong as children. We didn't do anything. We're blameless. It's our parents' fault. That's why we're in exile. They did the sinning. They went to worship other idols. And now we find ourselves in Babylon. The parents ate the sour grapes, yet we're the ones being punished for it. It's the big word for it is transgenerational accountability. This is what they're ticked off at. And it comes from this idea in Deuteronomy 5, 9, where God says this, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation for, of those who hate me. It makes sense why they would believe this. This is what God had said. But there's, there, there's, there's something else going on here. There's some truth in this. There's some truth in this idea of transgenerational accountability. It, it's a proven statistic that people who grow up in abusive families are more likely to continue the pattern of abuse in their families. It's not 100% accurate, but there's some truth to it. Uh, the same thing goes for drinking. If you are, come from an alcoholic background, the chances are you will have some alcoholic tendencies. It goes for greed. If you have a greedy background and your parents were greedy, chances are you're going to develop the same tendencies as them. It goes for prejudice and racism. It kind of trickles down. And so there is some truth to it. A friend of mine said, you are winning at being a parent when you get older and your kids move out and they go to therapy for different things than you went to therapy for. If that happens... You did a good job. You didn't pass. So that's my goal. I don't want Judah to go to therapy for what I do. But the children of Israel are saying this. Why do we need to suffer for the sins of our parents? We didn't do anything wrong. They did. And God's response is quite simple. You're not suffering for the sins of your parents. You're suffering for your sins. This isn't your parents' fault. This one's stuck on you. So the children of Israel sitting in, in Babylon that day or in Jerusalem because the nation has been torn apart, their temple is being raided, it's just not going well. They're saying, this is our parents' fault. God's saying, no, no, this is, this is you too. You are guilty of this too. Don't play the victim mentality. Don't blame this on somebody else. Embrace this reality that you have a hand in this. This is not always someone else's fault. 
Look what he says in Ezekiel 8, or 18, 4, 5, and then we'll skip down to 9. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. That's clear. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is right. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will live, declares the sovereign Lord. God isn't contradicting himself here. What God is saying is that family systems do pass on some of the dysfunction. Yes, we see that in our world. We see that in our lives. But God is also saying, and he says this over and over in the Bible, in Ezekiel, he says that it's not a given that we inherit that dysfunction. It's exactly the opposite. Because the good news of the gospel says that you don't have to fall into the same trap that your parents fell into. You don't have to fall into the same trap and the same cycle that you grew up in. The gospel comes and says you can be different. And we see this happen in the scriptures. In 2 Kings 21, we're introduced to a king named Ammon. And in verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he became the king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for for two years. His mother's name, there it is. His daughter was Haruz. She was from Jotba, you know, that place. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So Manasseh did evil, and now Annan's done evil, and he, complete, he followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping the idols his father worshiped and bowing down to them. He forsook the Lord and all of the, the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in obedience to them. So we see this, just like his dad did, Annan's following suit. And guess what? Manus's dad did the same thing. It's this thing. You can read through Kings, and it's, there's a the theme that goes and says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a generational pattern that everyone's falling into. Ammon was one of the worst kings of Judah. He, uh, he did so bad that the people eventually threw a coup and killed him. And then, just to so, show how bad he was, he said that the people said, we're going to put your son in charge. He's eight. Ammon, you're 24 years old. An eight-year-old can do better than you. How many of us know an eight-year-old? <laughs> I do. Can you imagine an eight-year-old? Being in charge? No, we don't want that. But Ammon was so bad that, you know what? Your son, Josiah, is going to take over. Now watch what Josiah does in 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, which means loved by God, daughter of Adadiah. She was from Botskath cool place. He did what was right. Now look at, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning to the right or turning to the left. Did Josiah fall into the same generational patterns of his father? No. The cycle was broken. In fact, Josiah went down as one of the best kings Israel ever had, led a revival, found the book of the law laying in the temple, cleared out the temple, said, get this stuff out of here. It's not supposed to be here, and led people back to the proper way of dealing with God. He broke the cycle. What happens is we fall into the same pattern where we blame other people and we think we are automatically stuck 
living like this. There's no hope for me. We might say things like this. My dad dealt with anger, and he dealt with it improperly. My dad was an angry person. Not my dad, but I'm just saying in general. My, my, the father was angry. Therefore, I have a temper, and I will always have a temper. And that's just the way it is. I can't change. Or we say, mom was a control freak. She controlled everything. Type A, we, we kind of give excuses for it. She controlled everything we ate, wore, thought, said, everything. Mom was a control freak. Therefore, I'm controlling. That's the way I am. I'm never going to change. You can't change me. I'm stuck in this pattern. Or we say that dad had uh, con- uncontrollable anxiety. Therefore, I'm up every night at 2 a.m. worrying about whether the lights are going to turn on this morning. And I have uncontrollable anxiety, and I can't change. It's just the way I am. Stop trying to change it. Or my parents were greedy. Therefore, I hold on to my stuff too much. That's just the way I am. I can't change. Or my family struggled with addiction. My family struggled with porn addictions. Therefore, I'm never going to change. This is my lot in life. I'm just going to follow suit. And we have this way of staying in the same rut of the sins that came down ahead of us. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's true that we take some of these characteristics on as we grow up, as we live. We learn how to cope with what's happening around us. We do this. It's, it's, we all do this to some extent. However, there comes a point in our lives, and it comes a point in the time of Israel, where they had to take ownership of their own stories. They had to take ownership of their own past in order to live into the future that God had for them. We have to take ownership of our history so that we can change our future. Just because it was like this for mom and dad doesn't mean it has to be like that for you. Just because it's like this for you as parents doesn't mean it has to be like that for your kids. This cycle can be broken. We acknowledge that sometimes things are, sometimes our personalities and our characteristics are shaped by environment. Sometimes it's genetic. But at some point in our lives, if we want to break this cycle of brokenness, we need to experience and take ownership of our own stories. We need to remember what we were created for. We need to say, we're in exile because of this happening, and I want it to stop today. I want it to be different. Instead, what we end up doing is blaming instead of getting out of it. The people of Israel did this. They forgot their story and continued to blame their ancestors for why they were living this way. You don't have to keep losing your life in the spin cycle of your past. This is what God is saying to Ezekiel. You don't, these people don't have to keep blaming. They can get out of this. You don't have to keep living this way. Uh, when we were in California, or when we used to live there, I used to surf all the time. And there was, I mean, any, any more people surf lately? Okay, Tim. You know, yeah, you go to Hawaii a lot. And so surfing, and say you're going down a wave, and you get hit. Maybe the wave is this tall, and you get hit by a wave, or it closes on you. There is this uh, helpless feeling of tumbling through uh, the cycle of the wave. It is exhilarating. And, and you're, you're, uh, you're, you don't know which way is up. You don't know which way is sideways. Maybe your leash broke, so you can't tell where your board is. You're underwater. There's a couple feet. And if it's a big, it's a couple feet above you, and who knows how deep below you. And if it's a big wave, you're going to be down there for a while, and you're just kind of doing this. 
you're trapped. You can't get out. In fact, the more you fight it, the more air you lose, and now you're exhausted, and then you drown and die. So, <laughs> any of you guys want to go surfing? Uh, when you're trapped in the spin cycle, the best thing you can do is relax. And then there's this trick. You put your hand over your nose and you blow a bubble. Bubbles go up. That's how you know which way is up. There is a way out of the spin cycle. What Ezekiel's telling the people here in Israel is there is a way out of this spin cycle. There is a way when you feel absolutely hopeless, there is a way out. You don't have to stay this way. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel is it gives us freedom to stop getting lost in these cycles. In Luke 11, Jesus is telling this epic parable about how he came to stop Satan and it's a whole spiritual warfare. But in Luke 11 verse 21 Uh, He says it this way, when a strong man is fully armed, he guards his own house and his possessions are safe. Jesus in this parable is talking about the strong man in this section is Satan. He's in charge. He's the strong man and he owns this part and he's safe. But when someone stronger and Jesus goes, me, when someone stronger comes along, overpowers him, takes away the armor in which that man had trusted and divides up his plunder. So this is what Jesus is saying. We're stuck and we're bound because the strong man has a lot of our our, our stories bound up in him and we can't get through it. It's hard work to break these generational patterns and you're trapped by the strong man. Jesus says, I've come and I've bound the strong man so that he no longer has power over you anymore and you can go into the house he's protecting and plunder it. This is what the gospel does for us. It says you don't have to keep living this way. Jesus says we don't have to stay in the cycle of our past. And this is the reality that we need to embrace. That you can change. It's possible. You don't have to be stuck this way. But in order to embrace, we need to, but we need to embrace reality in order to do it. In order to change, we need to say, I have a hand in this. It's sometimes my fault. I can break this chain. I can break this cycle. And when you embrace reality, it brings us to the next practice. Embracing the reality, we need to be able to own our stuff. But the second practice is we need to embrace repentance. That's a word that we're not keen on. We don't like to talk about repentance because what does it mean? It means admitting that we were wrong. Repentance is tough. But when you embrace reality, when you can see that, yes, you have a fault in this, that you've done something wrong here, we've all done something wrong. Paul is very explicit that none of us are holy. We have done something wrong. When you embrace reality, you can embrace repentance. Here's what happens in Luke 3. Uh, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. It's not a, it's not a welcoming uh, greeting there. You who warned you to flee the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God will raise up children for Abraham. So here's what's happening. They, he's talking to the Pharisees. They had saying, we're fine. This, we're, we're, we're perfect. We're holy. We haven't done anything wrong because we're children of Abraham. We're Jewish. We're the best. Therefore, we can't do anything wrong. And John says, you're a brood of vipers. Repent. Get over yourselves. This entitlement that you have, get past it. 
What John is saying is don't fall prey to the blaming mentality and stop thinking of yourself as entitled. Instead, look at yourself in the right way and turn around. This is the same message that starts in Ezekiel, and it goes back for a few chapters. It actually starts this message in Ezekiel 14. He says this, Therefore say to the people of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Repent, turn from your idols, and renounce them as detestable practices. And then he gets more specific in verses in chapter 18, 10 through 13. He starts list, listing them. He says they eat at pagan shrines, they seduce their neighbor's wife, they bully the weak, they steal, they pile up bad debt, they admire idols. In our case, it would be consumerism or individualism. He, they commit outrageous obscenities. If you want to know if you're doing an outrageous obscenity, think about it for a second. And if you have to ask, it's an outrageous obscenity. It is. And then he says, you exploit, the, you exploit the poor. Ezekiel is saying to this people, turn away from these things. In the Hebrew mind, there was this idea, we're all going to learn two Hebrew words today, okay? And the Hebrew word that I first want you to say back to me is the word yetzer. Yetzer. It's Y-E-T-Z-E-R. Yetzer. Yetzer is the word for the creative force that is described that holds the universe. The rabbis used to say this, that the yetzer in, in us can control us to go either good or control us to either go bad. It's said that as creatures of God created in his image, we have the ability to carry with us the creative ability to transform any moment into good or evil, to compassion or disdain through its influence. This is the yetzer. Imagine that the Yetzer as a power at the core of your being, like a waterfall rushing through you that is both spirit and humanity, both present in potential and in constant motion. This is what the Yetzer is. It's the constant potential to elevate life and living. Every subject that we face is subject to our Yetzer, the shifting of our Yetzer. It's in our character traits those character traits of who we essentially we are, they're not absolutes. They're not stuck this way. You can change your character traits. They are affected by our choices of good and evil. This is where the yetzer comes. It's either this way or it's this way. It's good or bad, and the direction for us is how we choose to do it. Now, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva. Can you say shuva? Teshuva. Teshuva means to turn. So you have your yetzer, which is this directional thing going good or bad. Teshuva is the act of yetzer coming from over here and turning and going over here and then going over here. It means simply to turn around. You have the ability to turn around. Teshuva corrects yetzer's direction and returns to the center it returns towards light all those choices that we have turned towards darkness. It's the acknowledgement of the potential within to either depress or evaluate the human condition. Each one of us is on a path and we are invited again and again to embark on a journey of goodness and kindness of righteousness and ethical living and how we were meant to live. This is our story. When we return from the exile of the Yetzer going to the bad, it's, it's a small thing, but it's the repentance to come back to the center. This is what repentance means. It means to come back. You have the ability to move 
your body, you have the ability to correct yourselves in order to live lives of justice, lives of generosity, lives towards fidelity and relationships, lives towards honesty and speech, lives towards advocacy for the, for the voiceless. Teshuva, or repentance, begins with us putting aside those things that distract us from the center and from our calling. It means bringing the yetzer back to the middle where it's supposed to be. It's one thing to stop whatever action that you are doing. It's one thing to repent and come back to middle, but there's something else that you have to do. You, have, you can't just say, I'm going to stop this and then walk away. Why? Because now there's a big void over here and it's going to get filled with something. How many of you have stopped eating sugar for a week? Okay. What'd you replace it with? Nothing. So at two weeks, what happens? Oreo cookies, right? Because there's this void that's left by something. And if we don't replace it with something better or something healthy, the yetzer is just going to fall back to that way. And now you're oftentimes worse than what you were two weeks ago. Matthew talks about this. Jesus is telling a story about how he cast a demon out. And he says, you can cast a demon out of something, but if you don't fill it with something else, this demon's not just going to come back. He's going to go away, and then he's going to grab seven of his buddies, and you're going to be worse off than you were when the demon was originally cast out. A house swept clean is, is often dangerous. This house is empty, and the demon goes, cool, there's more room for us to come back. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you're going to change, if you're going to, to, to make the move, if you're going to repent, it's best to fill it up with something better. It's one thing to repent. It's one thing to break the cycle. However, the problem is replacing that cycle with a new story to live in. We don't, when we don't, we're bound to fall deeper into the same problem. Therefore, we can't just live a life that says no. We can't live a life that says, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink too much. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to replace, or re- repeat my parents' mistakes. I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to eat too much. I don't want to enjoy sex too much. And, and, and so we start saying, this is, this is our life. It's defined by no. The problem is, it doesn't work. You can't just clean out a house and expect it to be beautiful and hospitable inside. When, uh, when we cleaned out this house and painted it, and when Roger and everyone finished it, it, was, it looked beautiful. However, it was empty. It smelled nice because it was clean, and sometimes paint fumes can smell nice for some of us. And so it smelled great, it was clean, it looked good, but was it hospitable? No, it was empty. So you have to fill it with things that make the house hospitable. Just turning away from something is ugly and empty. And then we become known for more of what we are against rather than what we're for. And this is the risk of what the church, not just our church, the church in general is is at risk for these days. We're oftentimes known for what we're against rather than what we are for. And so we hear this a lot as pastors. I'm rethinking my relationship with God because, to be honest with you, what I'm seeing in the church isn't very attractive and I don't want to be associated with it. They're not talking about ethics of the church. They're talking about the people of the church or what the church stands for. This, and, and so they turn away. Because we've become big and hospitable, 
but, or we become big and empty, but there's nothing there. We know what we're against. We don't know what we're for. And so it's one thing to wipe everything clean, but if we don't replace it with the things that God wants us to replace it with, then we're in trouble and we've gone too far. We need to replace our hatred with love. Where there is anxiety, we need to replace with peace. Where there's frustration, we need to replace it with patience. How many of you have one of these in your pocket? How many of you have ever had to do an erase and install completely? Yes, it's a good thing. When you get a new one of these, our tech guy at the church taught me this. When you get a new one of these, uh, there's, there's, you have the temptation. Say your, say your phone is full of problems. It's not working. So you go down to the Apple store or if you're a droid person, whatever store you go to, and you go there, you, you pick up your computer or your, your phone, your tablet, whatever, and you say, and it, you, lo- you log in to say, uh, this is who I am, and it gives you the option. Restore from backup or set up a new device. And many of us will go, restore from backup. Why? Faster, easier. I can have my phone ready. I don't have to re-download apps. I don't have to... Uh, uh, reinstall all my passwords because who remembers every single one of their passwords? And so you have this thing. It's easier that way. However, what I've learned is if I take my phone with all of its problems and then come and say, get a brand new phone, spend however many dollars it is now, and instant say, restore from backup, what am I doing? I'm bringing all the same problems over into this device. And this brand new device is going to have the same problems. What do we need to do? We need a clean install. You need to say, new phone, new heart. I need a new heart. I need to get rid of all this stuff. I need to break these habits, but I don't just need to break these habits. I need to fill these habits with things that are life-giving. If, if I have a tr- problem with relationships, I need to end those relationships and then have a clean install and say, I need new relationships that bring me life. I need to, yes, we need to break the porn addiction, but I can't say I'm done with this porn addiction. I need to fill that and create a new brain plasticity, whatever the neurons do, and make a new habit that replaces that one that can actually bring life. Saying you're sorry for something, adjusting the yetzer isn't just enough. You need to have a repentance and then replace it with something that can bring life. And then... That brings us to the last R, experience righteousness. When you do that, when we have repentance, uh, you experience righteousness, true repentance, and righteousness is defined this way, right living. This is only found as the fruit of repentance. When you repent, the fruit of it is, uh, is, is righteousness. Here's how it works out. I can have all the latest golf gear, and I can still be a terrible golfer. I can go spend $500 on a new driver, which I'm tempted, and Carrie tells me I can't, uh, and I would still have a wicked slice to the right. I can buy a new guitar, and I can have the best guitar out there. I could spend $6,000 on a guitar, and I could still be a terrible musician. Uh, I can have all the team jerseys. I can have all the Russell Wilson jerseys and whoever else is on the team that didn't get traded away this year. I can have all of them. I can have all my 49er jerseys, and I can look like I'm part of the team, but I'm not part of the team. And this is the same thing with Jesus. We can have all the right words. We can pretend that we're filled with Christ's life, but it doesn't make you a Christ follower. Following Christ means that we actually live differently. 
And it's our collective failure to live differently that's at the forefront of the reality of why people are having such a time with such a hard time following Christ. People are saying no because they have no interest in rituals. They have no interest uh, in, in just formalities. What people are interested in? Change. People are interested in transformation. What they see, though, is anger, culture wars, fear, judgmentalism, and tribalism. And in order to change the genera- this direction, the people of the church, those who follow Christ, need to have a time of repentance. We need to turn. We need to adjust so that we'll be reminded of our story. We've forgotten our story as Christians. We've forgotten why we're put here. We find ourselves in exile. We need to be people of hope, people of love, people of acceptance, people who want, people to, who want other people to come and experience what Jesus has to offer. That this is what we need to do to embody what God is really like. Those four messages at the forefront of Scripture. This is what God is like. This is what God is about. And the path we are on is the path, and that path that we should be on is the path that would lead to life for anyone who followed it. So you might find yourself in exile today. But in in your exile, the the invitation remains the same. We turn away from from lines and, and walls that we put up between us and we love our neighbor. We turn towards loving our neighbor. So you replace hatred with love. You turn towards caring for the least of these. So marginalization, you turn towards care. You turn towards generosity. So you drop your greed and you're generous. You turn towards hospitality. This is the pattern of ongoing repentance. This is what the gospel means. You don't have to repeat the pattern you're stuck in. It's turning the opposite way. Adjusting. Yeshuva. Change your yetzer. Allow God to fill the other things. Ask God what you should fill it with and fill it with those. This is why Christ came so that we don't have to be trapped in the ongoing spin cycle of everything that we have. The hardest part that you and I are going to have to admit this part is saying, I am trapped in this cycle. Because many of us don't want to appear like we have any problems. Well, I don't have a problem. It's their problem. We're so steeped in that that we don't, we, we don't have it. And so why should I ever change? This is the first thing you have to do is saying, I need, I need to change. I need to turn. This isn't going very well. The worst question my therapist ever asked for me when talking about my problems was this. How's that going for you? And I looked at her and went, this is why I pay you. It's not going well. And getting to that place where you can look at your life, you can look at your story, and you realize you're in exile. This isn't what you were created to do. The first step is admitting, this isn't going well. I need to replace it with something. I need a change here. This is the power of the cross, and this is why we celebrate communion every, every, uh, the first of every month. And today, we're, it's just like every first of every month, we're going to celebrate communion. The power of Jesus to break your cycles. The power of Jesus to tie up the strong man that has held you bound for so long so that you can be free. Today, you can be free. You can experience the freedom. The invitation is for you.
Today, as we take communion, we're going uh, to take it at our own pace, at your own time. I want you to do this, though. Before you come, I want you to do some business with, with God. This isn't something we take lightly here. Before you take communion, it's, it's remembering what Jesus did. It's doing a little inventory of your life. Uh, is there things I need to repent of? Is there things in my life that are keeping me from experiencing the life that God wants for me? Am I in exile? How do I return? It's one thing I want you to think about. The other thing is I want you to have the courage that if there's someone in this room that you need to do some business with, that there's some bitterness, you have a conversation with them before you come and have this. You set things right. Paul is very, very clear about before we take communion, we do these things. We remember Christ, his sacrifice to save. Yeah, you can come on up. Uh, We remember Christ, his sacrifice to break the cycles, and we repent and we break the cycles. And then he says... Make sure that your relationships with each other are doing okay before you come. And then after some time, I want to invite you to go out towards the back and everyone come down this aisle. And then as you come, you take a piece and you dip it. This is the body of Christ that's broken for you, the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And you return to your seat where you'll take it. There's some, uh, some health things. The bread has egg. The cracker has soy. All of it is gluten-free. So if you're worried about that stuff, there you go. Before we come, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us the invitation to break the cycle that we're trapped in. The cycle of sin, the cycle of shame, the cycle of regret, the cycle of guilt. Uh, the cycle that we keep spinning and we don't know which way is up. Lord, you come and with the cross you say, the cycle can stop here. The cycle can stop now. That strong man that binds us all together has been bound up. No longer has us trapped. In fact, he's powerless. And we can go into his house and raid it. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the cross. And so, Lord, today as we pause and consider Lord, would you bring to mind the areas in our lives where we need to stop, where we need to turn, where we need to adjust the yet, sir, through our repentance. God, may we not only repent, but may we fill it with the things of you. May we, may we see fruit from when we do repent. Fruits of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. May those be the things that we dwell on and think about. And it's your name we can come. Amen.